You're listening to The Photo Untaken, stories from outside the frame, with me, Alan Clark. It is now that there is time, if only briefly, to think of these three men and the burdens and the hopes that they carry on behalf of all mankind. Walter Cronkite said that back in 1969, when I was two years old. Those hopes were mine, all mine. I can remember touching those hopes on my TV screen as a two-year-old growing up in Madison, Tennessee. I was born just a few miles down the road from where I first saw these missions in black and white. And I can remember the static electricity popping between my fingers and the screen as I followed the lines of Neil Armstrong's helmet, his suit as he stepped out onto that gray and white rock, igniting the imagination of not only a two-year-old boy, but about a half a billion people across this earth. Together we held our breath when he uttered those words. That's one small step for man. Imagination seems so much bigger then, and I seem so small. I can remember most of my report cards had a note from the teacher to my parents. It usually sounded something like this. Alan is always looking out the window, or Alan is daydreaming a lot. And if you speak to anyone who knows me, you know that nothing has changed since then between my Armstrong hoodie and all of my postage stamps to my most recent purchase of Mylar foil from the command module pressed in a museum case. I've got it bad. So it's no surprise that at some point I would have a guest who had something to do with NASA, anything to do with NASA. Luckily for me and you, today we have Chris Gunn, photographer for NASA's James Webb Telescope and fellow dreamer and recorder of all things high tech. Chris started his career much like I did, making photographs of musicians and rap artists and other notables. Hell, we even worked for the same hip-hop magazine, The Source. Until one day, he took a chance and showed his work to the folks who were hiring for NASA. Not only did he get that job on one meeting, he started working not too long after that and still works there 19 years later. Tell me about when you first started, like where you started. I think you grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. One of the earliest memories you have of wanting to be a photographer. So involvement in photography, probably about nine years old. Wow. There was an after-school program at my elementary school, and we had a very, very talented instructor. He taught us darkroom photography and black-and-white photography using 35-millimeter cameras. I want to say I was probably seven or eight then, Mm -hmm. and then got my first SLR when I was nine. So this school that I went to, they had all these programs for what they called the talented and gifted kids. And one of those programs was a journalism type of deal. Media or whatever. Exactly. So I looked at the camera as a tool to aid in writing, kind of a photojournalistic tool, and put the camera down, I want to say, after I was nine for a few years, picked it back up probably around 13 or 14 and started shooting again. Got a job at a camera store, the whole nine yards, you know, was able to then experiment with more cameras and experiment with lights and that sort of thing. Set up a studio in my parents' garage, painted the floor gray and put a background thing up. But anyway. You had it bad from the very beginning. I love it. I had it bad from the very beginning. (laughs) But to be honest, the image making or the taking of the pictures and the darkroom work were not closely related at that time. I enjoyed darkroom work because of the latent image and the chemistry and the science behind it. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed taking pictures because, you know, it was fun and you create something that people like. I don't know how to explain it. I hadn't put the two together yet. Right. So that's why when I went to school initially, I wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Because the thing was, I hadn't met any photographers that, how can I put it? That you could look at and go, yeah, that's it. That's the guy I want to be. Exactly. Not in person. Yeah. It hadn't all coalesced for me. It just seems like minority and women are just like the lowest percentage in photography. It's kind of disappointing to me. Mm. Especially every time I do workshops, it just seems like it's 70% white and 30% everything else. And it's just not me. I'm just like, what is the deal? Now, do you think that's participation or do you think that's <laughs> representation? I don't know. That's the mystery. That's part of it. I, I said this to Sig Harvey when we did our pre-interview and she said, yeah, we need to change this narrative. And I'm totally down. It's like, yeah, we do. But I just don't understand it. And I finally saw that little 10 minute Vimeo thing on you and you actually spoke about it a little bit where you said that 
you know, they just don't teach math and science in inner city. So kids don't think they can be where you are for any reason. Right. So that's representation. It's an opportunity. Right. And it's also, if I go and I show my book to you, are you prejudging me? Case in point, when I used to shoot for the Washington City paper Mm -hmm. back in the day, I had an art director tell me, we're not sending you on this job because you're the black photographer, but we think you can probably navigate that area of D.C. better. Oh, that area. Right. So I would take the job, but I would always defy expectations Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't shoot what they were expecting because that's just not how I'm built. I just would read the article. I would interpret it a certain way. And certain types of photography, certain types of imagery is interpretive. So if I'm Mm -hmm. going to interpret it different than what you think I'm going to interpret it. In other words, I was always like blowing their minds, right? Okay, well, how do you come up with that? Yeah. And it's because you have to give people opportunities based on not just the color of their skin or whether or not they're a man or a woman, but the quality of their work and the content of their work, if you will. Absolutely. So when Source sent me to Pharrell's studio... Mm -hmm. To shoot the clips. I was a fish out of water, dude. (laughs) Yeah. I like jazz. I like reggae. Yeah, me too. I like soca. I guess the irony is that I wasn't a fan. So I didn't really know them. I didn't even know Pharrell, really. Mm -hmm. And this was years and years ago. My car was a little busted. And I pulled (laughs) up. There were, you know, Porsches out front and Benzes out front. Oh, yeah. The big tour bus. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. And I really enjoyed making the photographs. To me, they were really, really cool portraits of the brothers. And I sent them up to the magazine, and they weren't what they were looking for. And I guess it goes back to representation and can I shoot what I love, being who I am. Mm -hmm. I fit into what Source thought a photographer who shoots hip-hop should look like. It all worked. But I really wasn't. But it was the other direction, which is interesting. It was the other direction. Uh And right now, I really enjoy shooting science and engineering. There was some cool photographers that were in the building next to me or around me or whatever. There's this one kid named Nathan who had dreads like you, was cool. We worked together on a lot of stuff, collabed on a lot of stuff. But he just kept telling me how frustrated he was because he would just get stuck with black weddings and and all this kind of stuff all the time. And he never could break through that barrier. And I just, being an ignorant white person, I was like, I don't know what this barrier is. I've never seen the barrier. I don't know what the barrier is. But then I started being concerned about it. And then I would just have him talk to me about it all the time. But it seems to be a thing. But it's just like any other art form. I don't know. I mean, like, would you say that about music, though? I mean, well, sure. How many white reggae artists are there? <laughs> and how many do there need to be? Zero. I'm just kidding. But the thing is, that there are some, right? <laughs> yeah, there are. I bet it's hard to break into that scene. Yeah. Just like it's hard to break into the country western scene if you don't fit the look, right? Yeah, I get it. The interesting thing, I think, is photography is still very new, very young. It's a young art form. It is. I think that if you do a little research, you'll find out that there are tons of women and people of color that are shooting. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, is do people consider me a black artist because of my subject matter? I don't know. Personally, I don't. But (laughs) it's just like I can see how this happens. I can see how this goes down and I don't like it. But it's something that I think will work itself out. How's that? Okay. Yeah, I do think that it'll work itself out. I think that because of the talent pool is increasing and digital photography and platforms like Instagram and Twitter, these platforms are allowing people to be seen that normally wouldn't be seen. I think we're at a place in history where let's say there are a dozen black photographers that are really making a huge impact in the art world. Mm-hmm. And there might be more, so don't hold me to that dozen number. Right. But I don't know if that was as possible 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. I think we're growing into a place where our images, regardless of the subject matter, are more accepted. And that's an amazing place. And many of those are women of color, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Photography, like I said, is a very, very young medium. And the digital ones and zeros have really opened it up to a lot of people. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Michael Greco said back in the day when we all first started, you actually had to have skill to be able to develop things properly to do this and do that. And now that isn't as present anymore. And I said, well, doesn't that also mean some people that maybe weren't there before can be there now? 
if that barrier is lower, that means it's allowing more people to be in it and anyone to be in it. Then that excites me. That's exciting to me. I see that. I think that you still need skill to stand out. Oh, heck yeah. And content matters. Subject matter matters. And I think one of the cool things about the barrier being a little bit lower, if you will, it means that content matters even more. I think so. Yeah. Because, yeah, you can approximate a well-exposed image just as good as I can, but what about your content? Mm -hmm. What about the way you shoot your subject matter says something? Mm -hmm. What statements are you making with your work? And I think that's where, to your point, more people will have a voice using this medium, mm -hmm. be it African-Americans or Asians or women, Latinas, Latinos. Yeah. I think that these people will have a voice based on their content. I kind of wonder from the position of an art director, photo editor type of thing, if your work kicks ass, I don't think they're going to care who you are, what you look like. You know what I mean? I don't think they do. But then again, it's about access and content. Yeah. So I'm a young shooter and the subject matter that I use to build my book is what I have access to. Right. Okay. So I might only get to shoot certain types of people. Right. Because of who I am initially. And that then forms my book and limits the amount of access that I have for a certain period of time until my book shows more breadth. Yeah. So even though I might want to shoot cars, I might want to shoot Mercedes and Lamborghinis and Porsches, I start off shooting the guys working on their Hondas and their Toyotas. <laughs> yeah. So you have to learn how to navigate the system mm -hmm. on many different levels and to get what you want in your book so that you can show the stuff that the people you're showing it to want to see for the gigs you want to get. Yeah. One of my favorite photographers who's kind of around here, he shot a lot of the Jack Daniels branding. So whenever you saw Jack Daniels stuff, mm. it was usually this guy named Mark Tucker. Okay. And he's kind of one of my mentor hero kind of guys in town here. And he always used to say, don't put in your book what you've done, but put in your book what you want to do. That's it. I took this advice many times over. And if I didn't have something in there, for instance, I remember I wanted to work for ESPN, the magazine, like so bad, you know, I don't know why other than I like that kind of stuff. I like that kind of shooting. And I just was like, you know what? I want to do it. So I just made up a shoot. I just had a friend of mine who was a bodybuilder, hired him, literally bought everything like trunks, boots, gloves, robe, the whole bit, rented the place, had him, and we sat there for three or four hours. And I just replicated everything that I loved about boxing movies, whether it be Raging Bull or whatever. And I just put it together. And then I put it in the book. And dang, if I didn't get hired by ESPN, the magazine, to shoot probably two or three things for them. And then remember when the source had the, the sports magazine? Yeah, source sports, yep. Yeah, I did a few things for that. Same thing. Just got me a few sports jobs, and it was kind of worth it for me to do that. It proved that point perfectly. I teach this and talk about it all the time because of it. You put into it what you expect or what you want to get out of it. Absolutely. And I think that the race thing or the gender thing can play in when you are trying to get access to something that you normally wouldn't necessarily get mm -hmm. access to. Gotcha. Yeah. I know too many talented people that are doing really well and they've figured out how to sort of break into crack that code. Exactly. If I can go back to elementary school, I wanted to be a scientist. But then again, I didn't know any scientists. Right. I didn't see any in the books that I read. But I know that it interested me. The thought of being an astronomer or the thought of being a chemist or a geologist just seemed to fit. Yeah. Learning things made more sense than sports to me, for example. Yeah. I was an only child until 13. My mom worked for a reading advocacy group. Reading is fundamental. Mm -hmm. So I had tons and tons of books and sort of gravitated toward the nonfiction books. So I didn't really like fiction. I really liked books about stuff, about learning. Right. I do remember during the time where I put the camera down in terms of just taking pictures, I found a book on darkroom chemistry and started experimenting with photograms, just placing objects on paper. 
Yeah. So just to experiment with the darkroom side, got myself a German Zenith enlarger and started just exposing the paper to light. These two things weren't necessarily parallel developments, like the photography itself and then the, the darkroom stuff. Once I became 14, I started working at the camera store. You did that at 14. That's so cool, man. But it felt natural. It felt like that's what I should be doing. Was it a pro store? It was not. You ever heard of Rich Camera? Of course. Just so you can see the parallels of both of our lives, which, by the way, I've thought about a little bit. <laughs> I started at 19 okay. and worked at Wolf. And I think they ended oh, up okay. joining together later. Were they cousins? Yeah. Wolf and Ritz apparently were cousins, I think. Chuck Wolf. <laughs> Chuck Wolf and David Ritz, yeah. Yeah, I met him a couple of times. But the cool thing about working at Ritz my entire high school career was seeing a particular development in photography, and that was the one-hour processing machine. Right. For me, that started my love of instant gratification in terms of seeing images right after you shoot them. You could get your film processed and have it printed in one hour. C41. C41 process, exactly. So there's this thing that was happening as we move toward the digital image where they're giving people more and more instant gratification. Yeah. Of course, there was always the Polaroid, and we can get into that later, But because I love Polaroid. Me too. Or loved Polaroid. Fuji now, mostly. Is there a positive negative film available? I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't looked in a while. There was one available for a little while, and I think that's gone away. That was my favorite, 4x5 mm. positive negative film. I know Fuji still makes the Polaroids for the backs that go on Hasselblads and stuff like that. So I think they still make that FHP, FPC, whatever it was called. They might. I haven't experimented with it in a while. Polaroid as a company, I don't think, is around anymore. And I think the patents ran out and then Fuji was able to kind of jump in on that towards the end. Well, the film just wasn't profitable after digital. Right. I don't think they were making any money on it. Now it's a total cool thing to do if you're a hipster is to buy the film and to shoot with film. Can you age out of being a hipster? Do you? <laughs> uh, I may be the oldest hipster. And well, see, there you go. Yeah. It's, so you're a hipster too. I might be the original one, actually. This is depressing. So, okay, you get the job at Ritz, you're 14, you're doing this for a while, you said all the way through high school. And then, like, at some point, did you start going, hmm, I might be able to make a career out of this? Or were you just having fun with it? I was just having fun, and whenever people would suggest to me that I make a career out of photography, I would think about the guys that were coming into the store who were calling themselves photographers. I just was like, yeah, no. Isn't that funny? I said the exact same thing. I just like, I saw the guy in my hometown. I did not want to be him. Yeah. I, I mean, didn't want to take the school photos. I didn't want to take the family photos. And you, know, you have to understand, now it's so much cooler to do any of that stuff. But back then, it was the height of cheesiness. Right. I could recognize really good photography. Like, I loved European fashion magazines. I liked photo books. I started picking up books and recognizing uh, Irving Penn and Albert Watson. Uh, I was looking at this really good photography, but it wasn't the photographer that was coming into the store, and I didn't make any connections. So there wasn't the internet. So if you wanted to do research on photographers, you had to do it long form. You had to go to a library and spend some time. And I really didn't have any time to do that kind of thing. Right. So the only photographers I saw were the guys coming into the store. Okay, so fast forward, go to school, and I really didn't like political science. Mm. Or hardly any of the courses I was taking. <laughs> but still, I was like, well, photography can't be it. That can't be my calling. But it was still calling me. After school, I actually did get a job at a law firm in D.C. I was a librarian for a minute. Yeah. And um, it was probably the worst job I've ever had. <laughs> and I won't mention the firm's name, but it was a communications law firm. And the lawyers would come into the library and they would pull out some files out of a cabinet and then they would just throw them on the top of the file cabinet. And it was my job to put them back. I was like, wow, so these guys really can't put these files back in the cabinet <laughs> themselves. But anyway, there was a, uh, a lawyer there who was actually a film professor at GW. There we go. I told him that I was really interested in photography and hadn't figured out what to do with photography in my life. And he said, hey, well, show me some of your work. So I actually brought in some work. He was like, dude, what are you doing here? Hmm. And I was like, what? He was like, your, your work's awesome. I like how you're composing your photographs. And he kind of gassed me up. And I was like, wow, maybe I should, I don't know, look into going back to school or studying more photography. And I did. 
just so happens the first professor that I encountered in my new educational pursuits was the same teacher, a lot older, from when I was nine years old. No. Really? Really. That's an amazing turnabout. And that type of thing started to happen more and more as I took more classes and that sort of thing. That's when things really started to change for me. At that point, I was determined that I would be a photographer. That's really cool. Could you see that it was just lining up for you? Things were lining up. And that same teacher did at one point tell me that I needed to try harder because I had natural ability, whatever Mm -hmm. that meant, (laughs) and that I really needed to put a little more effort into my work. Right around that time, I also met the man who would become my greatest teacher and my mentor, who introduced me to the zone system and really sort of changed my thinking with respect to photography. Up to that point, I was just taking pictures. And after I met my teacher, I was definitely making photographs or well on the path to making mm-hmm. photographs. It was just the right amount of serious that you need. Mm-hmm. So that's when the world sort of opened up, still really, really young and still had a lot of learning to do. But that's when things started to change for me. If for the lawyer to go, hey, man, this stuff's really great. What were you showing? What kind of images were they looking at back then? There were portraits, like portraits of friends. Yeah. Portraits of guys I went to school with and us hanging out. But there was a style. And even when I look at them today, there's a certain style to them. I didn't have a lot of smiles. Hmm. There was a ton of seriousness in my portraits. Just a lot of intensity. I don't know how to describe them otherwise. But I will tell you this. There is a photograph that I made of a friend from college. And I held on to that negative I printed it in school at a school dark room before I met my zone system mentor. Right. And I took that same negative and image and I showed him and I, he said, well, hmm, it's not really a black and white image, is it? It's more like kind of gray and gray. Hmm. Um, it's a good negative. So you should be able to pull out a full tonal range print out of that. You know, if you know what you're doing. Months later, I printed that same negative again, and it was night and day in terms of the impact, Mm. just through the tones. So that's when I started to really understand that creating these photographs, to make them really say what you want them to say, they also have to, like, breathe on their own. Like, they have to have Mm -hmm. tones in them. They have to be technically correct, if that's what you want. In other words, to be able to control things so that you can put forth your interpretation of whatever you're shooting. For almost every image, if you can, you have to do it the right way to give that image a fighting chance. I used to think when I first started how much contrast, I was like super into contrast. And then I started seeing master prints I I would get my hands on or get to see them up close later in my career, you know, just seeing a master print up close. And you're like, dude, there's so much tonal range in the middle on this, but it's just not super contrasting. And, And as you grow more, as you look at these things more, you start realizing how much tonal range really matters. And It's just amazing. It's amazing when you see it and you don't even know how to explain it. You just know it when you see it and you're just like, that looks like a museum print. That looks incredible. I couldn't have said it better. (laughs) (laughs) But I also think that if you want to shoot something completely different, that's super high contrast, knowing how to do it the right way is the difference. Yeah. I did have to learn how to do that. Did you mess with cross-processing at all? I didn't mess with cross-processing Just before I started working at NASA, I was shooting a lot of four by five and two and a quarter Mm. with Polaroid positive negative film. Yeah. I saw some of the stuff. It looked awesome. Thanks. The Polaroid positive negative, basically you had a really low speed film that you could either shoot for the print or you could shoot for the negative. Mm -hmm. I think the negative was maybe 25 ISO and the print was 32 or something like that, but really, really low speed. No grain. It is the clearest stuff you've ever seen. It's amazing. Exactly. I mean, so my process would be to shoot that stuff. And then in the dark room, I'd use multiple baths. This is all black and white stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'd use Selectol Soft and Dectol. Mm-hmm. You familiar with Selectol Soft at all? I've seen other people use it. I've never used it, but I saw what it did. So what it allowed you to do is develop your lows in one bath and develop your highs in another bath. Mm-hmm. You know, I would spend, I don't know, hours making a fine print. And this would be something that would be published in our local city paper, but Mm -hmm. it was art to me. It was like high art to me. Yeah. And eventually that process became shooting the negatives and then scanning them and then being able to do digital manipulation in Mm -hmm. Photoshop, Photoshop like 2.0 or something. 
But the subject matter was local DC politicians or artists or, or that sort of thing. But it was all it was all fun stuff, all good stuff. Did you think, I guess at that point, as you're building your portfolio, that you were like, you know, this is good. What I'm doing is good. I'm happy with this stuff. Like you said, you felt like it was high art and stuff like that. At some point, you were like, hmm, I can take this up a notch and just start thinking how you were going to angle that. So you had that thought of, how can I get this bigger artist, this bigger personality into my portfolio? No, because I was thinking about how to pay my studio rent. Yeah. Unfortunately. No, I'm with you. I wish that I could have thought how to get this bigger personality, how to get more exposure. So I went the editorial route. So showing my work to more art directors for magazines and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to grow. Yeah. But I looked at getting the next job as being success. Mm -hmm. So when I got that next shoot, I was like, yes. Okay, somebody recognizes that my work is really, really good. I guess we're going to head towards NASA right now. As you've got this portfolio that you've built over time, somehow you found out that they had an opening and then you just went to show your portfolio mm -hmm. and you said you got hired that day. And I love that. I love that you went in and that your work got you hired. It was really good editorial work. I shot for BET. They had a few publications. They had Emerge Magazine, which was a news magazine, politics and news, that sort of thing. They had Heart and Soul which was um, sort of a woman's lifestyle magazine. And I shot for both of those publications. And really, really, you know, just clean photography, just good-looking stuff. Yeah. Um, of course, I did headshots out of my studio and uh, that sort of thing. Portraits, um, portraits for musicians and artists and that sort of thing. And that was my book, right? So it was full of some tear sheets and the Washington City paper. I gathered that stuff and had a fairly decent-looking portfolio. I went in to get the gig, just like I would at a magazine or that sort of thing. I went in, I showed my best work, talked shop when necessary, and I went in hoping to get the gig. Were you replacing someone? Had they had a history of having photographers doing what you were doing? Or were you stepping into a job where they were new and you were new? NASA and photography go hand in hand. Yeah. Because it's an agency that is sort of dedicated to the public. So the work that NASA does is for the people of the United States. Right. So everything that they do, for one, is documented. The position that I had was public affairs. They did a lot of portraits of people in their office and that kind of thing. So a lot of that work didn't go out, but some of it did, you know, initially. So I spent about six years in that position and I was replacing somebody. Yeah. I was replacing somebody who had actually replaced somebody else. And I was in the basement of the headquarters building. And I worked with people that had worked there for 25 years as photographers. Wow. So they had seen a transition from shooting large format to shooting 35 millimeter. And they were getting into the point where they were digitizing everything on their own, putting everything on photo CD. And they had actually bought the Kodak photo CD system and they were send their film out to be processed and they would digitize it. Super cumbersome. This was pre-Nikon D1X. Mm -hmm. So this is year 2000, and they had a digital camera, Kodak D460. I think it would take 15 shots before the battery would die. <laughs> the batteries weren't so great back then. No, I mean, I think it had developed a memory, and, and no one wanted to use it. And I was the only one that was like, well, I should use this camera. I mean, it's here. I should use it. So I was able to develop a relationship with our customer, the public affairs group, that I could shoot something and get it to them pretty quickly. Yeah. I think that's what solidified the relationship. So it, was, it wasn't just good. It was also delivered quickly. Yeah. And I also started to use things that I would normally use in the editorial world. So I'd use light where the other photographers wouldn't necessarily use lighting. Mm -hmm. I would take my time and try to really produce something good. And then I would also post-process it. Not extreme, but I would make it so that it, it just it looked good. Yeah. So I really started to develop a bit of a reputation of producing really good work. That's good. I started shooting their scientists and engineers as if they were hip-hop artists without the threatening look. Gotcha. So not a lot of smiles. If I had a group, I'd pose people not in a straight line like they were used to, but I'd stagger them so that they looked cool like they were in a band. Think Rolling Stones. One image that I made that I was really proud of, where there was a group that had solved one of Einstein's equations. No, really? 
I needed to make a group shot of these folks. What you find a lot is that these people are really reluctant to have their photographs made. Mm. When I first started working there, I actually had access to a really nice studio space. I had them come into the studio and I said, tell me a little bit about your work. And they said, well, there's this equation that no one has solved yet. And we finally figured it out. It's a gravity wave equation. Mm. And I said, well, I have this concept and I actually don't want to shoot you guys today. The only thing I want you guys to do today is write that solution, the equation, on this black background paper. I'm going to create this sort of uh, blackboard effect Mm -hmm. behind you guys when we shoot it. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah. So it's out of their comfort zone because they were really coming in to get that straight across the line. Everybody smile, look into the camera, cheese, click. Yeah. The photograph that we made was awesome because it was out of their comfort zone. I had no smiles. They had the equation behind them. It's kind of a faded blackboard effect. They didn't dress up. They dressed cash like I asked them to. Hmm. And it was just pretty cool. And from that point forward, I realized that I could create images at NASA for NASA that were outside of the ordinary. That was not what they were used to. And they would love them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was a that was a big turning point early in my career. To me, it looks as if this is a part of your style because your style, the interpretive part of it, it's clean but it's edgy and they don't look angry and they don't look like they're going to kick your ass, but they definitely look like they're intimidating a little bit, not hugely, but just a little bit. Like I know something you don't know. Well, the thing is, if you solve Einstein's gravity wave equation, you're kind of a badass. You are, but are you grinning about it? And are four people (laughs) grinning about it all at the same time? No. And if you're an astronaut, you're a badass. Yeah. These people are awesome. The scientists and engineers are all super serious people. Yeah. They're not jokey, but they're also not used to being photographed in a way where they're the star, like we would sports figures or musicians. So that was one of my goals early on, was to sort of create images of people within these roles, even if they're just technicians, but to elevate them. Science, technology, engineering, math, STEM, if you will. I think that's where we're headed. And I think to have images of these people also brings in people. You know, people want to know, hey, what does this guy do? Damn, he looks like a badass. Damn, she looks like a badass. When you got there and you talked about that older group that was dealing with film and older, you know, medium format cameras, was there like a staff pool that they had? There were, I think, three NASA photographers working at that time that were NASA employees, actual government employees. Mm -hmm. And there were two or three of us that were contractors at that time. Gotcha. Through the sort of reputation that I had gained as a good photographer, that's why I was asked to come on to the Hubble mission. Right. And the Hubble team was sort of behind the curtain kind of work for me. You know, it's like, wow. Okay, so this is what goes into project photography. Right. Project documentation. Wow, this is incredible. And because there had been four other servicing missions to Hubble, There were hundreds of thousands of photographs that had been made before I got there, Mm. primarily on film. Wow. One of the first things I did when I got there was ask that we upgrade the cameras. So it became a more streamlined operation with the digital cameras. So I went from public affairs photographer from 2000 to 2006. At the beginning of 2006, I'm asked to join the Hubble team for the final servicing mission which didn't actually fly until 2009. So that's three years of work leading up to the actual servicing mission. Mm -hmm. So we're doing crew familiarizations where we're shooting the astronauts. I'm going down to the MBL where I'm not diving and actually not shooting at the pool, but processing images that are coming out of the pool. Right. But I'm also shooting the crew familiarizations. Crew familiarizations are the choreography leading up to the mission, mm. or practicing, if you will. I'm shooting the development of tools and the packaging of all this that's going to go into the shuttle bay. So that's three years of work. One of the coolest things that happened for me there at the end of that three years was actually the 11-day period of the mission I sat on console. Mm. Because photography is such an integral part of a mission like that, the folks at Hubble decided that the photographers, the image makers, should actually be there during the 11-day mission, both recording the activities through video, but also able to call up images whenever they're needed during the process. Hmm. So if an astronaut is, let's say, repairing something, and he wants to see what it looked like on their practice bench, Mm -hmm. 
then we would pull it up and then get it to the engineers who would then get it to the astronauts. So this is all real time. They're able to look at it while they're in space. Exactly. That is crazy cool. To be honest, after that, I was like, okay, so I mean, I'm done. Like, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> I have hit the mountain. Exactly. Like, what else could I do? So that's 2009. Mission's over. What do you do? You find another job, right? As a contractor, I had people that were looking for work for me, and James Webb was the next thing to come online. I didn't know about the Hubble. I knew you worked on an STS mission. That's crazy. And there's nobody better to be working on the James Webb telescope than the person who worked on the Hubble. And that's you. The Hubble was interesting for me in that I didn't get a chance to shoot creatively, hardly. Mm. And that's because of the way the program was structured. And I think it's also about expectations. So what they needed was somebody to document the project from a purely scientific and technical documentation perspective. Yeah. They actually brought in a photographer to do some creative photography. But that's when I was just like, okay. You didn't uh, kill him, did you? No, 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 no. But I learned. I learned a lot. How to play well with others. Sure. And I also developed the desire to be more creative with web. Right. So when the opportunity of web came up, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to have to make some really beautiful images of this telescope. For one, it's a beautiful subject. But two, I'm the right guy at the right time in the right place to do this. Mm -hmm. And I need to get the right tools. But I have the skill set to do this. Whether or not the people around me recognize that, I don't know yet. But I'm going to make sure that everyone knows what I can do. Walk us through the difference between shooting as a photographer for this, that, and the other, and just shooting for, like you said, scientific purposes. What's so different about that? If you're shooting for just a technical purpose, then what you're trying to do is make it so that an engineer can take that image and show it to another engineer, and he can explain that image is just illustration for a technical idea. It's not necessarily aesthetically pretty. Mm. So that's the difference. So it's not interpretive in any way. Mm -hmm. When I go in to make an image that I think might be pushed out to the public or might eventually land on the pages of Nat Geo or Wired or something like that, mm -hmm. I go into it with a certain level of production. It's going to be lit. I'm going to probably stabilize my camera so that it's as sharp as it can be. I'm going to wait for the right image or create the right image through composition. A lot more visualization that goes into it. But visualization can go into a purely scientific or technical image, but the end purpose is different. Yeah, I was wondering if it was similar to, let's say, catalog, or if it was similar to shooting you know, jewelry, watches, anything that's small and shiny and signed with moving parts, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, catalog work can get monotonous, right? Mm -hmm. You ever done catalog work? I have done catalog work. I have too. <laughs> it just needs to be shot a certain way. You're right. going to repeat it over and over and over again. White background, flat light, mm -hmm. either high specularity or not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's similar to that. But also you might have to figure out how to shoot something. Right. Like it could be in a place where it's really hard to fit a camera mm. or it could be really hard to light. Or it could require macro photography. You might be three inches away from something that costs $10 million. Wow. So there's all kinds of considerations when we're shooting something in aerospace, like NASA-wise, that's, that's technical. It can be really, really complicated. It can be really, really simple. Did you ever have an instance where maybe you might have damaged something accidentally or otherwise? No. <laughs> No, I have damaged a camera, but no, I have not damaged any equipment. You've got stuff hanging over stuff. You've got stuff next to stuff, stuff heated, you know, that kind of thing. Well, exactly. But everything is about safety, safety first for humans, obviously. But it's not all about the humans. It's also the safety of the hardware. Mm -hmm. Everything is tethered. You rehearse everything. So if you're going to be on a lift mm -hmm. over something, you're going to rehearse your movements. Yeah. You have five people watching what you're doing. So everyone is looking at what you're doing and how you're doing what you're doing. No pressure. Exactly. <laughs> a 
I saw one video where you were kind of getting ready to go into the clean room because mm-hmm. I know the clean room is a big deal. It's a big deal for a lot of reasons, hooking up to kind of a hazmat suit and taping off your arms. <laughs> How big of a deal is it to get those dreadlocks through into the clean room? Well, I have a method now. So basically, I just have to tuck the hair into my shirt, man. Okay. It's so long and it would be a contamination source. Yeah. I tuck it into my shirt. Then we have to put the rest of the hair in a hairnet. We wear beard covers and shoe covers. And a surgical mask. I would imagine that affects your mobility just a little. So it doesn't, man. I mean, really? No, because after you've done it every day for four years, you expect it. Yeah. You do wear comfortable clothes. You don't want to overheat because it is warm, usually in the clean room. I expected it to be cold for some reason. I don't know why. It's cool, but if you're moving, it's warm. Right. <laughs> if you're in a suit, like a nylon, a thick nylon suit, right. it's going to get warm. And then, Shooting in the largest clean room in the world where this thing was being put together. Where is that, by the way? So it's in Greenbelt, Maryland. It's called the Sistiff. That was my studio. So when I want to create some really dramatic photographs, so say a mirror was arriving and I wanted to place some lights for some separation, I'd have to walk up basically 10 flights of stairs to get to the top of the mezzanine to place my lights. And then before I got my remote controlled lights, if they were too bright or too dark and to dial them up. I was the one running back up the stairs to dial them up or dial them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd overheat. <laughs> so I bet you did. Just to talk a little bit about the telescope, the telescope is going out to L2, so it's a million miles from Earth. Or if anything goes wrong, it's not serviceable. Right. So everything has to be perfect. One of the main things that they're concerned about on this project, in any project, especially a telescope, an optical instrument that's going into space is contamination. So just like you wouldn't want a piece of lint on your sensor, mm-hmm. you don't want lint or any contamination on the mirror surface or in any of the optical parts of the telescope. What are we planning to see with the Webb telescope? It's a time machine, and it's going to look back 13, 14 billion years to the early universe. If you can imagine just seeing the earliest objects in space, our origins, that's what this telescope is going to show us. So it's going to be able to peer through dust clouds, things that an optical telescope wouldn't be able to see because it's basically an infrared machine, and it will be able to show us the first moments after the Big Bang. So let me get this straight. I want to make sure that everyone just heard what we heard. We're going to see back into time, into the origin of the universe. And to be honest, an astrophysicist might correct what I just said, (laughs) but that is essentially it. Yeah. And it usually starts like this. Mm, Actually. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a camera or set of cameras. So it has four instruments on it, Mm -hmm. a near-infrared camera, a mid-infrared camera, and a mid-infrared spectrometer. And combined with the optics, this thing can look way back in time. Wow. I just think it's going to be amazing. You're familiar with Hubble images, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So think a hundred times magnification in terms of power, Mm. and you're looking at the James Webb Space Telescope. Wow. Pretty amazing, dude. Have you seen it deploy? No, I have not. So if you go online, you can look up the deployment videos. It's so huge, it has to fold up in order to fit onto the rocket to get to space. So as it's on its way out a million miles, it's unfolding. Do yourself a favor and have a look at the deployment video. Yeah. It's pretty amazing what it has to go through in order to get out to space. It has this massive sun shield that's the size of a tennis court, and that basically protects all the instruments that have to be kept really, really cold from getting too warm. All of that, as well as the primary mirror, have to unfold for it to do its work. Wow. Are we going to be able to send anything up to make any adjustments if we need to, or no? Just commands. So no, there's a whole team of folks that will be sending commands and monitoring its progress. I think it takes 28 days, almost a month to get out to orbit. And during that process, it's unfolding. Right. And then six months after it's out there and they tweak this and that, focus this and focus that, that's when we're going to expect our first images to come back. So after it deploys, after it gets out there, we expect our first images to get back when? About six months after launch. That's cool. And the only reason why I brought this up was just because of the Hubble Mm -hmm. and how we had to make some adjustments to it. Right. The corrective optics is what you're talking about. So with this telescope, one of the coolest things is that each mirror has all this freedom to be focused. And then each one of the 18 mirror segments is adjustable. And all of the 18 mirror segments make up 
the primary mirror. So it's infinitely adjustable. They've run through all of these tests in order to make sure that it's going to function as a single mirror, that everything will be in focus and sharp and that sort of thing. So they were able to take a lot of what happened with the Hubble and push it into this just to know what to do and what not to do. Exactly. Well, Hubble has a fixed optic, right? so that optic basically doesn't move. But this telescope, like I said, the mirror itself is adjustable. There's no way it'll get out there and won't be in focus. Gotcha. Yep. It's not that it's limitless, but it's pretty close. Dude, it's the Enterprise, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you get that feeling when you see it. It's really huge. Whenever anyone questions me as to, well, why does it take? I'm like, dude, it's it's huge. Okay, you have to make sure that everything works. So everything has to be tested. And they don't just test it once. You know, they test it multiple times and make sure that everything's going to function when it gets out to orbit. There's a photo on Instagram, the thermal test configuration for the telescope's Pathfinder. Mm -hmm. It's just such a great amount of distance. How are you able to cover so much distance sometimes? Like, are you really having to work to get 10 heads on this? Or I've got one head, I just do time exposure, I mix the lights together. What's happening? And I know it's different every time. That particular image that you're talking about, that's a huge chamber. That was a huge facility. A lot of experimentation. That black on that wall, the wall that's where the light is hitting. Yeah. That is a matte black that's probably darker than any matte black you've ever seen. Is this the one that they've made specifically to just suck up every bit of light, period? It's in that family. Yeah. I don't think it's the blackest black. Right. This is where they're they're actually doing the thermal slash optical test of the telescope. So they don't want any light to bounce around within this chamber. Gotcha. But in order to create this image and images like this, even of the telescope, I had to figure out how much light I needed to pour onto that black in order to have it register at all. Right. So (laughs) I needed it to go at least middle gray. Yeah. And then sometimes hotter than that in order to reflect the mirror in some later images. This was the Pathfinder. But there are images that I did of the telescope where I actually had to light it up so that I could illuminate the mirror itself. Wow. Luckily, by this time, I had actually acquired remotes and lights where I could dial up and dial down the power. Even though with this one, I think it was probably a Profoto 7B. So I went to battery-operated packs in these facilities for a couple reasons, primarily because you can't ever find an outlet when you need one. And if so, it's been taken by the scientists. Exactly. Thanks a lot, scientists. I'm trying to take photos here. And you don't want to be the guy that blows up anything, right? (laughs) No. I was that guy once. It wasn't fun. So now I do have a story to tell. This chamber, it's chamber A. So this is where they did a lot of the Apollo testing. Mm -hmm. And they would put the spacecraft in this chamber with the astronauts, and they would pump it down. Are you telling me that the actual one that went to the moon was inside this chamber? Yes. That is so cool. To enter the chamber, you have to go through the man lock. Mm Mm-hmm which is where the astronauts went through. So inside of the man log, there is flash detectors for fire. Okay. You get the remote in your hand and you just start firing off test flashes. And you're not thinking that your flash is going to set off the flash detectors and that the fire department will be called because they thought it was a fire. And I'm not saying that that (laughs) actually happened, but it could have happened. You can't confirm it. Nope. But it might or might not have happened. I understand. So every time after that, I was very, very careful. I hope we both don't disappear after this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think what I'm speaking to is that the shot like this to the normal person just passing by it on Instagram looks simple, but it is not. It is a lot of distance to cover. You're trying to light up the color black, which isn't any. It looks pretty simple, but I know better than that. And I just know that's a lot of light and a lot of things to deal with. How many heads were there? Was this just one head or was this two or three heads? Probably two heads. Yeah, probably two 7B packs. At full power, probably. Probably at full power. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of pop, man. That's a lot of pop. It is, but it worked. Were you mixing with the light in the front? Was that just like existing room light? That's existing room light. Yep. All the different combos of trying to get this stuff to work. And then I can only imagine the color grading that you had to deal with later of mixing the two things together or did it, does it work out? Okay. No, it works out. I take a lot of time when I'm doing posts on my images. To be honest, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I really enjoy both shooting and then doing the post. Mm-hmm. There's one shot in particular where it's just, again, a lot of distance. You're shooting the mirror and the mini mirror. It's kind of a mix of blue. And then the mirrors, of course, are yellow. Yep. And what a beautiful shot that is, by the way. Thanks, man. And it's just a good balance between everything, just the good balance of organic and inorganic. Is this with the two guys in the foreground? Yep. 
I appreciate that. It looks, again, very simple, but it feels good when you look at it, which is really hard to do when you've got all these contradictory angles and organic and inorganic things mixed into the same photo. But how is that blue light coming? The blue light that's coming from the left? That's all color balance. <sighs> Shooting tungsten with daylight balance lights. Right. That's how we're able to achieve that. And so the mirrors are going to drop gold no matter what. Right. Because they're gold. It's just so deeply gold that it doesn't matter what your camera setting is. There's actually a coating of gold on there for a particular reason. It's all about wavelength. Mm. So it's all about being able to reflect IR. Mm -hmm. They're always gold, no matter what. So no matter what light you throw at it, they're going to be gold. That's so amazing. I think I might have a version of this image, which isn't so blue, but the blue works. It does. Because the yellow then pops. But really, really cool story behind this image. Hasselblad, let me borrow the 86D, which is the 100 megapixel camera, mm -hmm. which I was like, ah, hey, yeah, whatever, 100 megapixels. And then I shot with it. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I can't go back. This shot was done with the 100 megapixel back on the 86 camera. And this configuration, there's no other shot like this because it was only done like this one time. Wow. And so after the end of the day, it was a really, really long day. I want to say it was an 11-hour day for them to do this deployment. Wow. At the end of the day, it's me and a videographer, Sophia, wrapping up. And I said, well, you know, I really got to get a shot of this. So mm -hmm. I start setting up lights, man, because I'm like, I got to make this happen. Mm -hmm. So it's two lights. You're looking at a two-light shot. One light is on the wall that's maybe 20 or 30 feet behind me, but that's what's reflected in the mirror. Whoa. Okay, and remember the mirror is concave. Wow. So it's sort of a telephoto lens. So it's actually a fairly small portion of the wall that's actually reflected in the mirror. Mm -hmm. But I had to light that, but not to a point where it was blown out. Yeah. Right? So then you're also getting a reflection of the mirror inside of the secondary mirror, which is at the end of that boom, the end of that tripod. Mm -hmm. And then there's a second light that's actually casting the shadow from the left, mm -hmm. shooting onto the two workers underneath the boat. Right. So I want to say the, the shot actually took maybe 30, 40, 45 minutes to set up and then some test firing. So maybe about an hour to get it all done. Luckily, there were still people in there working, but I made it. That's fantastic. It's a fantastic shot. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. It totally connects. I feel the balance of this shot. It's just a wonderful shot because you've got so many things working, but the thing that's the hero, and you made it the hero, but not actually by lighting the hero. You actually made the hero the hero by lighting something that reflected into the hero. <laughs> and that's just what's so great about it. You can tell this is a 100 megapixel shot only because you can almost read what's on the computer behind the mirror against the wall all the way to the foreground where you can see a label on whatever that piece of equipment is. That's the kind of detail we're talking about on a 100 megapixel Hasselblad. And it's also a selfie. You know that, right? You know what? I think I heard you say this, but where are you again? I'm inside of the reflection of the secondary mirror. So the smaller mirror, the deeper yellow mirror. Right, exactly. If you look. look there, there's there's an arm yeah. and there's a head. <laughs> I'm there. That's amazing. That's so great, man. Yeah, not intentional, but it's kind of cool. I love that you left it. That's just cool. We haven't covered the three questions. The first one is, what is the photo that made you? Hmm. In the first part of my career as a photographer, it was a portrait that I made for Emerge magazine of James Foreman, civil rights activist. Mm -hmm. Very simple portrait. But it was probably the first really cool editorial assignment that I had where I created something that I think was amazing, you know, just the image itself. Mm -hmm. The second part of my career, uh, that little first stint as a public affairs photographer at NASA, it was photographing the Gravity Wave group, the group photo where I had my subjects in this group, the four people in the group step out of their comfort zone and allow me to photograph them like rock stars. Yeah. Because that's kind of how I viewed them. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, so I'm pushing the envelope and I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. In this third phase of my career, photographing the James Webb Space Telescope, the pivotal image for me was an image that ran in popular science of a test in the space environmental simulator. So it was the SES chamber. There wasn't a ton happening 
at least from my perspective, visually on the project, is a lot of small components were coming in. So it wasn't super exciting. Right. And this was one moment where I created an image where I said, wow, this is really, really cool. And I gave it to our social media team and they pushed it out. And then, you know, I never heard anything. And it was a lull of activity happening. And then um, someone tells me, hey, dude, your your photograph is on a double page spread in popular science. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, really? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, Really? <laughs> so, of course, I run out and I buy 20 magazines. It was a good, good feeling that the work was being recognized, both my work and NASA's early work on this project. Yeah. It was something that sort of kept me in, in the game and it yeah. helped me keep focus that I can create images that, one, satisfy my need to create images that are good, you know what I mean? That make people go, wow, mm-hmm. but also that people will appreciate them enough to uh, put them in publications and more people can see them. Mm-hmm. So then what would be the photo or photo shoot that got away? The work that got away is the Hubble stuff. I didn't put a lot of creativity in some of the work that I did for the Hubble projects. And I wish that I had both the opportunity and the internal drive mm-hmm. to do that. The last servicing mission of the Hubble Project was amazing for me as a photographer, but I didn't necessarily hit the creative highs that I would have wanted to. Mm. You never know. Maybe there'll be another uh, Hubble servicing mission. (laughs) Well, I think they like you there at NASA, so I think they're going to keep you around. For a while. I mean, let's hope. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last question, of course, is always going to be, tell us a story that's happened on a shoot that's just kind of too crazy to believe. Something that happened during a shoot that you just didn't plan on or something that went nuts or just somebody that acted crazy, you know, or something like that. Yeah, so so nobody acts crazy at NASA. <laughs> okay, everybody's really cool. You're probably the craziest acting person probably, at NASA. Yeah, probably. But probably the worst thing to happen to me was I'm in that same chamber, the one that sort of made me enjoy shooting the web project for that after a lull of activity, mm-hmm. that shot that was in Popular Science in the SES chamber. So I'm in that chamber again. And they're doing some testing. And at this point, there's two levels to the chamber. So you have to climb up a ladder with uneven rungs to get to the second part of the chamber. You have to have special training, actually, to even access the second part of the chamber. So they're doing a lift to put the instruments in the chamber. So the lid of the chamber is slid off. So there are maybe, I don't know, 20 people around the lip of this chamber. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the lift... After the instruments have been brought in and screwed down, you know, shoots over a successful shoot. I put my camera into the plastic bag with the string tied around it to have it go down to the ground level again. And I put the camera in the bag and all of a sudden you hear thwomp, boom, you know what I mean? Echo, echo, echo. And everybody's like, what the, what, what was that? What was that? You know, of, of course, thinking that something terrible has happened. Of course, it has happened, but it was my camera. So the card, first of all, was okay. So I got the images. So I'm now identified as the guy who dropped the camera in the SES chamber. That's not exactly what happened. And no matter what I do, I'm always the guy that dropped the camera in the SES chamber. That's not what happened. (laughs) And they're reaching, but they're trying to look and find the blame. Well, these are the guys I work with. So they're looking for something to hang over my head. And they found it underneath the camera. Oh, they found it. They've drawn diagrams of me dropping the camera in the chamber. It's terrible, dude. That's probably the worst thing that's happened. But I did get a new camera out of it. Sweet. And, uh, yeah. and that wasn't why it was dropped at all. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Gunn, what is your favorite image that you've taken during this time working on the James Webb? I think it's the photograph of the two guys standing in front of the fully deployed mirror. And one guy's pointing and the other guy's sort of looking at what the guy's pointing. And I guess what I like about that image is not just the fact that it's a really cool photograph, Mm -hmm. but I went in to shoot the mirrors. So I brought my ladder out. I brought the 50 megapixel Hasselblad camera. I lit it and I wasn't expecting anybody to be in the shot at all. And these guys actually walked over to talk about something at the top of the telescope. And they walk into my frame And one guy points up at something and the other guy leans his head over. And I saw that and I was like, hey, don't move. (laughs) What? Don't move. Mm -hmm. 
it's to this day one of my favorite images. Yeah. And there are a few images like that, but I think that's probably my favorite. Yeah. That's amazing. It's an amazing shot. And I think mine, I don't know why. I think I just identify with it probably just a little bit more. The shot of probably inside the clean room with the person standing in front of the giant door just by themselves. It's the photo of the person standing in front of the systems development at the integration facility. Oh, that shot. Yeah. That's a cool shot. Yeah, I love that one, man. I'm going to enter that one into the NASA photo contest. I think this is the second year. And this one qualifies. I made this one last year. So this was a test shot. I was doing some portraits in the SysDiff. They just redone the floor. And in fact, you didn't even need to have a clean suit on in the clean room during this time. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do some portraits there of some of the folks that I worked with and the media team, the videographers, because they could wear the mask without, so you could see their face. Mm -hmm. They could wear the clean suit for the effect. During the process of testing, I was like, you know, pulled back and... I was like, oh, my God. You know, tweak the light a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite photographs. It's not of the spacecraft, but it's definitely one of my favorite photographs. Yeah, it just has the feel. It has the tone of space. And I love that because it's just this isolated feel. And that has a lot to do with some of the work that happens with, you know, astronauts or some of the technicians working long hours or you working long hours. I don't know if you identify with that photo as much as I do, but I love that photo because it just has the suggestion of space in it. And I love that. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the interpretation. Mm -hmm. And of course you're looking at that wall that he's in front of. That's the HEPA filter wall. Uh, I think it probably goes up, I don't know, another 20 feet, not in this image. Whoa. So yeah, it's pretty cool, dude. It's pretty cool space. Your place in history and your legacy is maybe bigger than you. And we may not even know what that is for years to come, which is kind of cool. But what you've done in your time here as you've spent it very well. What's amazing is that you came to NASA, you made some changes that were subtle that probably had a ripple effect that you don't even know about. And when you look back at your legacy, what a proud legacy, man. What an amazing legacy that you've left. I appreciate that. I want you to talk about your legacy real quick. My legacy? Oh my God. Yeah, man. I just want you to think about who you are uh, and what you've done. What you're doing is a big deal. You think so? Absolutely, I think so. You had the wherewithal to be able to go, you know what? We need to get bigger cameras and record this because this is an important thing. And I think that's almost as important as you being there and the way you're lighting them and making them rock stars. I think what you did and made some changes to say, you guys need to take this seriously and upgrade this a bit because this is about to be turned, you know? So I think that was a huge deal. So I just wanted you to talk about how you feel about your work that you've done. Sure. I don't remember when I was like three or four, but my mom tells me that the teacher complained in preschool that I was too serious. And I do think I have a tendency to be like super, super serious about things. What photography has allowed me to do is be serious and have fun at the same time. Shooting for NASA, I've just decided to pour everything I could into making the best images possible. So if that meant Asking the projects to invest in better gear, to invest in lighting gear, to allow me to create the best images possible. That's what I did. It's just really all about sealing the deal to make this project just shine because these images are going out to the public. So I don't think about legacy. What I literally think about is creating images that make people go, wow. And getting the tools and creating the environment to make that happen, that's what I think about on a day-to-day basis. Now, do I realize that some of these images are going to live on probably beyond my lifespan? Yes, but I don't think about that at all because I think that would stop me from doing what I have to do on a day-to-day basis. Project hasn't launched yet. I have to go down to French Guiana to shoot some cool images there at the launch site. So I have a lot more work to do. Yeah. Maybe just leave that for the rest of us to say that is an amazing legacy. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, I man. appreciate it. Chris Gunn, thank you for being on The Photo and Taken. Thanks for having me on. This has been great. Wow. What an incredible conversation we had with Chris Gunn. I don't know if you could tell, but Alan's inner child was going crazy with excitement, as was mine, talking with Chris about all of his behind-the-scenes work on Hubble and James Webb telescopes for NASA. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And what an important legacy Chris has been leaving through every single image he shoots, not just for science, with everything he's helped document for NASA, 
but also how Chris is representing a new generation of black photographers in an industry dominated by white men. Since we recorded this interview in February of 2020, Chris has actually won Photographer of the Year at NASA in the Places category for his photo of the technician standing in front of the massive wall of HEPA filters at the SSDI facility. Plus, he won a second Photographer of the Year award in the Documentation category for his selfie photo of the deployed James Webb telescope that he talked about with Alan. We'll have a collection of his amazing photos in the show notes for this episode at thephotountaken.com slash five, along with links to his website, his Instagram profile, and all the fascinating NASA information he mentioned. So you can follow the progress of the James Webb Telescope as it's set to launch in the fall of 2021. We also wanted to let you know about a series of workshops Alan is working on, the first of which will be in mid-September 2020 with our friend Chris Buck, who was our guest on episode one of the Photo Untaken podcast. So make sure to visit alanclarkphotography.com to learn more about Alan's workshops and sign up for his email list to get all the updates. Thank you again for listening to the Photo Untaken. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review and rating in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. We'll see you next time.